Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. There are no undefeated teams left in the NFL. The Eagles go down. The 49ers go down. Uh, the remaining members of the 72 Dolphins are popping that champagne today. Uh, a lot of people said that this was a bad weekend of football. I entirely disagree. It was a wild weekend of football. A lot of unexpected stuff happened. Um, and we're going to try to break it down to the best of our ability. Again, we are recording this on Monday morning before the Cowboys and Chargers game, so we do not have any comments on that game because we haven't seen it yet. hasn't happened yet. Um, I will say, first things first, EJ, the gods were not on my side. You know, when we filled out our underdog slip where we have one name per game from our preview show, uh, I missed on Gus Edwards higher on 41.5 by literally one half of a yard. He finished with 41. Uh, I, I was on pace to hit on the slip this week. But I think I'm going to miss it by literally one half of a yard. So uh, not not my greatest day in terms of picks, but uh, still had a very enjoyable Sunday. How about you? Tremendous day for the line setters. <laughs> they, were, <laughs> they were right there. I was watching that Ravens game and uh, Gus Edwards took a two yard loss, sort of like zero late in the third quarter, early in the fourth quarter. And I thought, huh, that's going to crush me. <laughs> that's that's not great. Um, but I just let it go. And then I got to the end. I was like, no, he picked up. He, yeah, he was at 38. He picked up. Yeah. Three more <laughs> yards. Oh man. Uh, it was a very chaotic weekend of football. I would agree with you that it was not uh, a poor weekend of football. It was a poor weekend for officials. And we will talk about that. And I don't mean in one particular game. Usually there's one game that fans are really upset about. There, there lots of fans around the NFL, like most fans around the NFL, have a pretty good case to uh, be throwing tomatoes at officials this morning. Um, please don't throw tomatoes at your officials. It's a figure of speech. Uh, there were a lot of calls that influenced games yesterday and a lot of non-calls that influenced games yesterday. So chaos doesn't necessarily mean bad, but it was not as expected. Uh, we're not going to talk about the game in depth, but the last call... On the Sunday night game, uh, Giants-Bills has uh, a lot of people pissed off this morning, and for good reason. Um, I will also say keeping Darren Waller in the block on fourth and eight certainly was a decision. Uh, I feel like you go out and you get a Darren Waller specifically for him to run a route on fourth and eight, but hey, what do I know? Uh, very interesting Sunday night game. I'm, I'm happy that... Um, I just went back and watched the All-22 and that I didn't actually watch the broadcast because it feels like uh, the first three <laughs> quarters of the game were not worth watching on the broadcast, uh, but the All-22 was certainly wild. Um, but yeah, to your point, officiating, not a banner week for the refs. 
but it was a banner weekend for defensive football, starting off with uh, our first game that we're going to recap, Ravens-Titans. If you like red zone defense, this is the game for you. Um, first things first, I want to talk about the positive for the Titans. They held the Ravens to 1-6 and six in the red zone. This was a top three red zone offense coming into the week. They were at 72%. For the Titans to hold that juggernaut, uh, and I do say juggernaut, to 1-6 and six in the red zone is admirable. The defense kept them in it as long as they could. You know, they basically made them, made them rely on the Justin Tucker show. Uh, unfortunately, the Ravens defense is just even better and absolutely crushed uh, the Titans offensively. Uh, Tim Kelly, I did not think, had a, had a good day in terms of calling plays. Uh, Tannehill obviously did not have a good day. Malik Willis had a terrible day. The offensive line had the worst day of them all. Like, the Titans offensively were just completely anemic. Um, but I do want to start off by, by giving credit to the Titans defense because the only reason they were even sort of kind of in that game uh, was because of them. Titans defensive line was smashing early, and that's not a surprise. We've talked them up on this show a bunch of times. Their front four is vicious. Uh, I will really say, like, front six <laughs> is vicious because of the rotation. Um, this week's featured beast was Danico Autry. <laughs> they seem to rotate on a weekly basis. Jeffrey Simmons is doing Jeffrey Simmons things, but Autry with that length was just crushing stuff. And whatever he didn't get to, Aziz Elshire cleaned up behind him, nine tackles and six assists. And that's really what he was brought in to do, and he did a very admirable job of it yesterday. Um, going back one level, Sean Murphy Bunting gave the Titans a 14-point swing in this one. Like, he was, he gave them plus 14. Early in the game, Ravens on a return. He catches the returner by a toe. If he doesn't catch him, it's a touchdown. And literally, he caught him by his toe. He tripped him, and that was seven. And then his INT later in the game, Titans go on to score one of their very few touchdowns. <laughs> only touchdown in this game because of him. That's 14 point swing because of one player. Um, we liked the addition in the off season. He pays dividends in that system for the Titans. Doesn't mean the difference because again, as you said, the talent on the other side that's been assembled is, uh, is very solid. It's super well coached. They both came to play. We knew they were going to knock the hell out of each other. And they did this one delivered on that score for sure. Uh, on the on the flip side, again, we, the main story of this game is the Titans' offense. Uh, well, maybe not the main story for everybody. The main story for me in this game is the Titans' offense because, and full disclosure, we had we had a lot of disagreement with uh, our our buddy Ben Solak, um, who in the off season basically stood up and said, "Hey, Titans are not going to be a good football team. Like they they might be one of the worst." football teams and all of a sudden done and you and I at the time were like mm, I don't know about that like there's some talent there on the offense we love the defense Rabel's a good coach Ben was right uh, especially about the offense like the offensive line for the Titans gave up 21 pressures yesterday which is astronomical Malik Willis of course didn't help when he came in the fourth quarter when Tannehill was injured um, he deserves some of the blame for taking four sacks in one quarter but at the same time the offensive line just could not hold up. Baltimore was totally teeing off on them. Um, and I, I feel like Tim Kelly also deserves part of the blame because of the supreme lack of balance to help out the offensive line. Um, you know, for a game that was, I don't want to say close, but reasonably close 
for pretty much most of it. Um, to have Derrick Henry only get 12 carries in the entire game seems inconscionable. Like It's not like they were getting completely blown out the entire time. Uh, and, and one of them was a wildcat, wildcat, excuse me, popped it for 60, 63 yards with 11 minutes left in the third quarter. Still a lot of time left, okay? The entire rest of the game, so what was it, 20, 26 minutes of remaining game clock, he got four more carries the entire rest of the game. You know, one of those was a 15-yard touchdown, and then he only got three touches after that. So... I, I do feel like Tim Kelly kind of lost the plot in this one. Like the only way that they're going to beat Baltimore and the only way that they've ever really beaten Baltimore is dialing up a Derrick Henry plus defense type game, you know, and just completely out muscling them. Uh, that's the only way that Tennessee's ever historically beat this, this team in the Lamar era. And they, they got away from that and they trusted their offensive line to pass protect. And they, it became very clear early on that they could not, and they still kept going back to that. Well, they couldn't throw the ball. Um, the receivers couldn't get any separation. Like, even Hopkins, uh, we tried to warn you in the offseason, like, this is not your older brother's DeAndre Hopkins anymore. Like, he, he's not he's not that kind of guy anymore. You know, he's he's your later career Anquan Bolden. Uh, and he's not going to prop up an offense all by himself. And not having that explosive element of Traylon Burks, not having a good offensive line, not relying on the one thing that they can do, which is run the ball. It was just a complete shit show offensively. And when you look at the frustration that was coming out of the Titans locker room after the game, you know, Jeff Jeff Simmons calling people out saying that a lot of people just didn't want to try. A lot of people weren't putting any effort in on the field. The vibes have never been worse in Tennessee as, as far as the Mike Vrabel era. I don't know what's going to happen there, but it doesn't seem like it's going in a good direction. Back to the summer. I think we put too much faith in things going along as they have gone along in the past and that Traylon Burks would replace that one element that they really needed because the Titans are still the Titans. You laid it out beautifully. This is a defensive team that runs the ball. We saw it a couple of years ago in Seattle where they just pounded and pounded and pounded, and then the cracks started to show, and Derrick Henry you know, busted big runs in the fourth quarter. Stop me if you've heard this one. All Titans fans are like, stop, I've heard this one. I hear it every <laughs> week. But we really thought Traylon Burks was going to be that shot down the field that they needed. Not A.J. Brown, but A.J. Brown light that could occasionally take the top off the defense. This team misses him so much. No separation, no juice at the second level. Tannehill is cooked. The wheels have fallen off. Ravens sold out to stop the run. Titans couldn't pivot. You talked about Derrick Henry. All those carries, one of them was for 63, one of them was for 15. He didn't even get 100 yards. He got near 100 yards, but he got 63 and 15 in two carries. And all the rest of the carries, Ravens were just like, nope, you're not going to beat us, Derrick. And they couldn't pivot. Tannehill left injured. Malik Willis came in. He immediately got harangued into ineffectiveness. Like, I was like, oh, sweet, Malik Willis time. I want to say, uh, I don't want to see this. <laughs> this <laughs> <Yeah>. is knocking. <laughs> it he was bad even, immediately. <laughs> he couldn't even set his feet. I mean, to be fair, like, you talked about the pass protection, and there was very little to none of it from moment one, and it got worse from there. He just kind of, he turtled up and, you know, took hits and four sacks, like you said. Patrick Queen had an impact in this one. We want to talk about that Ravens defense for a minute. 
I feel like getting Roquan last year took so much pressure off him. I didn't account for this when Roquan went to the Ravens. And he didn't have to be the guy anymore. Patrick Crean drafted high. Everybody bust, bust, bust. He's not playing up to potential. He's so bad. Roquan comes in all the spotlight, huge contract, everything shifts to Roquan. And I feel like Patrick Queen just like had this weight lifted off his chest and he could breathe and he could learn from Roquan and he could go be like a super high end Robin. Right. And he's morphing into a Batman because of it. He's just not one of those. doesn't seem like he's one of those alpha dogs. Roquan came in, took all the alpha spotlight and Patrick Queen has really ascended since then. His play has gone way, way up. Did and, you see, uh, by the way, the not to cut you off, but um, the play that Roquan made right before the two-minute warning, like the, the heads-up <laughs> yes, play, did. where yeah. Chig yep. caught the ball, and then and Roquan he was like, him. he's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna bleed off as many seconds from the clock as I can. Go ahead, get up, so I can tackle you again. Like, th- it's that kind of stuff, like the heads-up plays that Roquan makes, where like it, that really like separates him, I think, from most linebackers. Like he just gets the game and his situational awareness is so top tier and it it actually is rubbing off on Patrick Queen and and Queen you and I had a lot of problems with him in his first yeah. couple of years this is the best football he's ever played he's loving it and I for one just wanted to call out that I didn't appreciate how much of a two-for-one move that was going to be I thought it was a one-for-one move yeah you get Roquan he's awesome Mike McDonald's gonna love him Patrick Queen was kind of an afterthought and instead Here's Queen just blossoming sort of under Roquan's umbrella, and it's it's been, you know, that's just gold for the Ravens. Matabike's two sacks, both left marks. He was one of the guys bringing big pressure for the Ravens. Um, I, I feel like that defense did what they needed to do. They end up winning the game, but it's largely I'm with you because the Titans' offense could not get out of its own way. As soon as it became clear that, Every pass was going to be contested. There were going to be no chunk plays. You were going to get no relief. Ravens just teed it up, brought extra guys. They're, you know, super physical. I feel like I don't even have to say that in a Titans-Ravens game. It's always going to be super physical, hitting guys right up to the whistle, maybe a little bit after on both sides. This is not, you know, shots at Baltimore. Guys are getting beat up. This is always how this game's going to be. And, you know, the Ravens are more balanced. Their offense was better, not great, better than the Titans. I mean, Lamar started on an absolute heater. We should say that. He's nine for nine to start this game, throwing darts. And it was like, wow, they're catching it. Awesome. <laughs> the other guys in the receiver core chipped in. We talked about that being really necessary. Andrews got back to being Andrews. Zay's out there being an alpha. The other guys are all chipping in with two catches, not dropping balls. And the Ravens look pretty good. They ground down in the middle of the game a little bit, but... In terms of balance, the Ravens were better on both sides of the ball. The Titans were really good on defense, and I can understand Simmons' frustration looking at the offense and going, hey, we're doing our job. Trust me, I'm a Bears fan. I understand really good defense looking at the offense going, come on, a little help here. And they didn't get it yesterday, and they end up losing the game. Uh, I will say one note on the Ravens' offense. Because, again, between the 20s and especially early in the game, they were awesome, and Lamar was awesome, and, and he was doing a lot of Lamar stuff. Red zone play calling, I thought, was not great in this one. And, and I, I, there's nuance here because I, I do think the Titans played excellent red zone defense. Mm-hmm. I also think that the Ravens didn't help them out in, or didn't, didn't help themselves in terms of red zone play calling. I feel like they didn't give Lamar and his receivers enough chances to make plays. 
and they were leaning uh, they were leaning heavily on on the run game in the red zone when it became very clear that the Titans defensive line was just not going to let that happen. And maybe Monken just didn't trust that the receivers would make the plays, and so he was really just leaning on the ground game. But I feel like there was a lot of of meat left on the bone specifically because they didn't let Lamar throw the ball in the red zone. Hopefully they they get that corrected in future games and um, and they let their MVP caliber quarterback be an MVP caliber quarterback. <laughs> like that's how they beat the Browns, right? Was Lamar was surgical in the red zone as a thrower. I would like to see them let him do that some more. But other than that, I, I really have no complaints about the Ravens. Like they, they played a great game. They're still a great team. Like even with their injuries, uh, you know, even with Hamilton getting ejected, rightly getting ejected, by the way. Like, I don't think Hamilton's a dirty player, but that that is an ejectable hit. I think two things can be true. Um, but even with that, like, the, the Ravens are a threshing machine, uh, and they're they're going to be there at the end uh, of the AFC playoffs. I, I feel very comfortable saying that at this point. One really quick interruption, then we'll get right back to the show, I promise. Today's episode is brought to you by Butcher Box, and if you're looking at all the food that's on your screen right now, of course, if you're watching the YouTube version of this show, everything there that you're seeing is using meat that we've gotten delivered from Butcher Box. That dirty rice was using their ground beef. I also got the strip steaks from Butcher Box. I got the Cajun rib tips from Butcher Box. Even the chicken breast, which I pan seared last week and then kind of paired that with my homemade uh, pesto genovese, which I threw on some pasta. That chicken came from Butcher Box too. They have basically every single cut you can think of, whether it's 100% grass-fed beef, there's also, again, the free-range chicken, wild-caught seafood, pork that is raised crate-free. If you want it, they probably got it. And they also have recipes available on their website for every single item that they have as well. So if you're looking for any sort of creative inspiration for how to cook it, they can help you out there too. If you happen to be a meat eater like both me and EJ, and you want a more convenient way to get your meat, just check out ButcherBox at the link in the description below. That is butcherbox.com bootleg. And if you use promo code bootleg on your order, A, you're going to get $20 off. But B, and this is the kicker, you're also going to get free ground beef for life in every single box. So as long as you keep that subscription to ButcherBox, you will get two pounds of ground beef for free in every single shipment. I want to thank ButcherBox for continuing to work with us once again because our sponsors help to make this show possible. And our audience supporting our sponsors also makes this possible. So thank you to everybody who's already used our code on ButcherBox and encouraging them to come back because it really does make a difference. With that, thank you all for listening and watching. Let's now get back to the show. Speaking of the Browns, by the way, (laughs) the team that the Ravens beat recently because Lamar is Lamar, they are the first team to knock off the 49ers this year. And... I I have a lot of mixed thoughts on the Browns because their offense is so frustrating, especially without Nick Chubb. It is so frustrating, regardless of who's playing quarterback. We've seen three different dudes play quarterback for the Browns this year. And it feels like it hasn't really worked at all with any of them, uh, even with their starter, Deshaun Watson, whenever he happens to come back. But their defense is just so utterly dominant that I still don't feel comfortable putting a ceiling on this team to give context to how good the Browns defense is they're allowing 200 yards per game right now 
they are on pace to be the third team ever in the history of the sport to allow 200 yards or less per game. The last team to do it was the 1970 Minnesota Vikings. That is how ridiculous this team is. And so I want to give Jim Schwartz his flowers for taking largely, not entirely, but largely the same talent that was here on this defense uh, in Cleveland before and getting the absolute most out of them. Um, And I also want to give credit to the Browns players because they are all, like to a man, playing out of their freaking mind right now. Like you look at this Browns secondary, it's the stickiest group in the NFL. It's the most physical group in the NFL. It's the most explosive group in the NFL. It's the best tackling secondary in the NFL. Like, it's absolutely insane, the tape that they're putting out there right now. They've got to sort out their offense, but we're not talking about the offense. We're talking about the defense, and we should be talking about the defense. My favorite thing about this one is Schwartz trusted his dudes. He did not play scared he was super aggressive in this one he played mostly man he said go out there and knock them down you're as good as them get them go get them I'm gonna turn you loose go get them you gotta win right there was no like hey we're waiting we're gonna try and fool Brock Purdy it was like no we're gonna man up on people we're gonna go one-on-one a lot at every level and you guys are gonna have to whip today and they did. He brought his linebackers. JOK got into the action. Like Schwartz, the guys are digging playing for Jim Schwartz. It's like all the guys in San Francisco, you could see that energy on the sideline when D'Amico was there. You can still see it some. It's not that it's dropped off that much, but like the last two years in San Francisco, the defensive guys coming back over after they just harassed an offense into a punt, like bouncing up and down, high fives. They knew they had their number. The Browns defense is starting to play like that. And we've said for like three years, this is the most stacked roster on defense in the league, right? They've just continually brought talent in, but they haven't been able to maximize it. And Schwartz just cutting the dogs loose and saying, go hunt. And they stymied, you know, the giant, right? They stymied a team that we've been talking up all season as possibly unbeatable. And they bloodied their nose and said no buck stops here and they win the game because of that and i just love how schwartz called that game he you know even even late in the game burned him a little bit on the on the very last drive the first part of that drive they came right out there was no prevent there was no we're gonna we're gonna cut time where they were lining up in press and right up until the penalty that kept that drive going they had it and then after that San Francisco moves the additional 30, 35 yards, gets in the field goal range and misses it. But like he didn't back off. It was the same guy throughout and it worked for them that I think you have to play teams like San Francisco and Kansas City like that. You cannot say, you know, we're hoping for a couple of good breaks. You have to go out there and say, we're going to we're going to force the breaks to happen for ourselves. And we're going to do that through pressure, through man and trusting our guys. We've assembled the right dudes. Let's go get them. Uh, I want to give some context to to Brock Purdy's performance in this game, too. Against an elite defense on the road in not super great weather. Um, so the 49ers were 3 of 12 on third down. Here's what their actual third downs were. Third and 3, third and 13, third and 7, third and 15, third and 10, third and 10, third and 11, third and 10, and then that last third and 2. 
Jim Schwartz called man coverage on literally all of them. <laughs> and I, I was watching the all 22 of it last night. I was charting it myself. Man coverage on all of them. It was mostly one lurk or one cross, whatever you want to call it. Uh, one dog, which is just cover one, but with the fifth guy being a rusher rather than playing a whole zone. Or just calling straight up zero. They did that a few times. And these DB, DBs were suffocating all day long. And it was a very different plan than what we saw from Dallas against the same offense the week before. Still a middle field close coverage, right? Still, quote unquote, protecting the middle of the field, but not really. <laughs> no. Because if you look at how Cleveland was covering the middle of the field, Brock Purdy's bread and butter, um, if you're calling one lurk, the zone help is coming from depth. It's coming forward at the intermediate middle threat, right? It's not having to try to guess. It's not like a hook dropper as a linebacker trying to guess where is the guy behind me. It's I have eyes on the guy coming to the It's a safety coming down, essentially. Getting eyes on the guy coming over the middle while also having peripheral vision on the quarterback. And so if you have that intermediate middle help coming from deep rather than dropping from short, it's a lot harder to manipulate it, for one. Uh, there's way better leverage in terms of how they take away those routes over the middle. And not to mention calling man coverage rather than zone means that the windows are tighter to begin with. And so what you saw was one of the safeties always coming down to kind of rob the middle when they were in one lurk, which was their most common coverage in this game by far. Um, and then the, the corners on the outside, because they didn't feel super threatened, um, in terms of Brock being able to hit like a really tough skinny post deep down the field. And they didn't feel super threatened about him throwing, you know, way far down the boundary over their head. They weren't really turning their hips. They were playing outside leverage and just keeping their hips pointed at the receiver and just waiting to break on like speed outs underneath them or curl routes underneath them, everything like that. They had no fear of the deep ball at all. And so the outside corners were playing it super aggressive. The post help, was basically like, go ahead, try it, I dare you. The intermediate safety was coming down, taking away all the all the dig routes and everything that they normally like to throw. And it, it left Brock with really nowhere else to go because those are the throws that he excels at. And, and Schwartz knew that, right? It's the same plan that Schwartz used against Jimmy, you know, whenever he had to play against that type of quarterback in a Kyle Shanahan offense. It's like, Schwartz knows if I just take away that intermediate middle of the field... Kyle, for the most part, has not had quarterbacks that can hurt me anywhere else. Um, and I'm very curious to see if anybody else tries that plan against San Francisco because very few other people have the secondary to pull it off. The Browns do. Um, but that tape is now out there. And it's been out there for a while because Schwartz does this damn near every time. But like, it's, it's just a reminder of, hey... This is a coverage that is consistently given this Kyle Shanahan team problems. Go ahead and see if somebody else calls it. Um, I will also say one more note on why they had so many third and longs in the first place. The first down defense for Cleveland was, for the most part, incredible. And I'm thinking about working on an episode uh, specifically about the importance of first down from an analytics perspective and how first down might actually be the most important down, not third down. Um, but on the 49ers opening drive, they gained eight, five, and then one yard on first down and they scored. 
On their next scoring drive, they had gains of 15, 33, and then 1, 4, and 5 on respective first downs on that drive. Uh, Their only third downs on that drive were third and two, and then third and seven. And then on their last scoring drive, it was literally one play on first down, which was that crack toss for for an eight-yard TD. On their non-scoring drives, their first downs were a loss of eight, a gain of two, a gain of zero, loss of three, gain of zero, gain of zero, loss of 10, loss of 10 on a penalty, and then a gain of zero on first and 25, which ultimately led to a third 20, a gain of zero, and then a loss of 11. So winning on first down against this 49ers defense or 49ers offense, excuse me, put Brock Purdy in an even bigger hole because he might not necessarily have the gun necessary to dig them out of it. And I feel like, again, Schwartz had um, had an excellent plan in terms of, hey, let's be super aggressive on first down. Let's get them behind the chains because we don't think they can they can get out of that. And then on third down, call man, take away the middle, make Brock Purdy, make, make Brock Purdy beat us deep down the field and deep down the sideline. Couldn't do it. And you have a recipe for a loss. Like, it was a brilliant, brilliant game plan, a brilliant performance by the players. Again, I don't know if anybody else can replicate it, but, like, this this could be a problem for the 49ers going forward if somebody else can replicate it. I think, to your point, it will slow some folks down. I'm not sure it'll help because even with that and a couple other things I'm going to talk about on the San Francisco offense— they still should have won the game. Their kicker missed the kick at the end. They Theoretically, were in, yeah. In reasonable, in reasonable range. Even though San Francisco struggles when CMC is hurt. He is the spark plug of that engine. And we've seen it since he arrived with his usage, both in the run game and the pass game. He is the straw that starts stirring the drink. He's not the only guy there, but he is the primary guy, and he is the first guy. He went out. When he goes out, they rely heavily on Debo to bring some of that diversity back to their offense, both in the run and pass game. Debo goes out. So really, the next guy in line is Ayuk in terms of production, in terms of focus, in terms of whatever else. And at that point, Schwartz was like, cool. All I have to do is sit on top of Ayuk and not let him go vertical? Neat. All right, that's not going to beat me, right? I'll, I might give Kittle a seam, but I've got athletic linebackers to run with him. So I don't feel terrible about that either. I'm feeling pretty good at this point. Like the variety, the diversity, the change of pace that I really wanted my guys to worry about. And I'm sure prepared them for all week. They're off the table. Like both of those chess pieces are off the table. They're in the locker room. I have one thing to do now and I'm feeling really good about it. Let's go guys. And that was when he really went to man and press and said, look, I'm, yeah, I don't think Purdy's going to hit whole shots over my head all day and beat me. So I come out of this game mixed about Purdy. We we said this might be the week that Purdy really has to put a team on his back. He hasn't had to do that. Let's see what happens. I kind of come out going, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Like, I mean, again, he, it, the last he drive was okay. Like, it, it, right. he, he got him there, and, and people want to say, oh, he's a yak merchant with Ayuk, and it's like, I mean, he threw the, he threw the correct read, and Ayuk paid it off. And then he had another slant off a switch release, and he threw it to Ayuk, and he paid it off. And, like, he threw the quick out from the from the far hash to convert on third and two. Get him, like, he, he got him there. He didn't do it the rest of the game, but he got him there. So, like, I also have mixed yeah. feelings. We're like, I don't know what to think about this. Yeah, without their vaunted run game, the spotlight shifts to him. That 
you know, that last drive was good, but he got massive help from a penalty. That drive stalled in the middle. They were out of field goal range. They were in desperation heave range, and he gets bailed out on a penalty. I'm not saying it was a good penalty or a bad penalty, but that's not Purdy, right? Like, that's, again, some help. And so it's not a, see, Brock Purdy didn't do it, or a, I told you he could do it. It's a, I'm still not sure if he could do it. He, you know, he played okay, but overall he's 12 for 125 with a TD. That's not going to get it done versus most teams in the NFL. And you sort of, it's it's not an awful performance. Again, they were in position at the end of the game to win it. But it's not a, oh, I feel really good about it. And I'm sure either. So I came with questions and I leave with questions. I think the only thing that we know for sure about this game is that um, the Browns, Browns got problems offensively uh when not even just when they have backup quarterbacks in the game because dtr threw three picks and then pj walker didn't look right either um they also have problems when deshaun's been in the game too like to to be fair not even fair uh equally critical of all the browns quarterbacks this year (laughs) but you know speaking just specifically about pj walker uh in this game i think you and i can agree that if Deshaun is missing a extended period of time for what's going on with it, I think it's shoulder, if I recall correctly, the Browns offense is in significant trouble because I I did not see anything from PJ Walker in this game that gave me confidence that uh, that they'll be able to score that many points. PJ offered up the full PJ experience in this one. <laughs> And he was most recently a bear before this, so I understand. I was excited about that addition. I thought he was going to be a very good backup to Justin. Throughout the preseason, I had deep concerns to the point that I was not at all surprised when they let him go. He made a bunch of great throws to give his guy a chance. He left a bunch of throws well short. (laughs) And he sprinkled in just enough cover-your-eyes, turnover-worthy plays where you go, what are you doing? Like, that's P.J. Walker. Some great stuff, some awesome mobility, some why didn't you hit that? It was open. And then some holy crap, what are you doing thrown into triple coverage moments where even he goes back to the huddle and he's like, shoo, ah, I'm really lucky there. Like he had that look on his face. And that's that's the whole bit with P.J. Walker. So, yeah, if you're a Browns fan and you're leaning on that for your offense, not great. On the plus side, Jerome Ford had a great day and he looked really good against a defense that has been dominating versus the run. It's a very validating day for him as a pro. He came out against a very good 49ers defense and put up a very good, very strong day. That's a good thing if you're a Cleveland fan. Um, The one thing I can't wait to go back to and pull apart that I didn't get a chance to yet is Miles Garrett versus Trent William reps. (laughs) Like pure football candy. I'm going to spend some time this week, like focusing on just those reps because doesn't get any better than that, folks, on either side. So No, it's it's literally best on best. Best left tackle in the game, best edge rusher in the game. Uh, Steelers fans don't come for me, but like Miles, if you're looking at if you're looking at Miles pass rush win rate and double team rate this year, like it's he is even by his standards, he is on a completely different planet this year. And so I'm I'm really looking forward to going back and watch that myself. Um, but yeah, overall Takeaways from this game are Browns defense might be historically good. Browns offense is mid as all hell. And when their quarterbacks don't turn the ball over, i.e. in the Pittsburgh game or 
DTR throwing three picks. I don't know if anybody can beat them because their defense is that good. When their quarterbacks do turn the ball over, PJ also threw two interceptions this game, by the way, they are incredibly beatable because there's only so much that a historically elite defense can do when you give them the ball like in your own red zone. So we will continue to monitor the Browns as the season goes along. If their offense can just be average, they will absolutely be an AFC contender against anybody. I truly hold firm to that. Um, But until further notice, I don't know. (laughs) I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. Um, Speaking of dominant defensive performance, by the way, Jets defense knocking off the other unbeaten NFC team, the Eagles. I I came away with less questions about the Eagles than I did about the 49ers, uh, mainly because, you know, a, a lot of what happened to the Eagles in this game was, fluky is not a good word, um, weird, just weird, like not, not stuff that you normally expect to see on a week-to-week basis, right? And again, I, I don't want to call this game a fluke, but it was it was definitely one of those where if the Eagles and the Jets play each other 10 times, the Eagles probably win seven of them, and this just happened to be one of the three. But it was a series of unfortunate events from start to finish for the Eagles. And we've been kind of talking about this background theme of their season where they haven't yet played a complete game and we're waiting for them to actually play a complete game and be themselves and play up to their talent level. We'll see flashes of it, but they continuously they continuously have been the biggest threat to themselves for one reason or another every single week, right? Like they just haven't played a complete game. And we've been waiting for that to bite them in the ass. And this week it bit them in the ass. You know, when Lane Johnson went down, we saw um, Jack Driscoll give up six pressures after that and directly lead to two stalled drives by himself. One was that sack at midfield on a very promising drive that probably could have scored, completely shut down that one. And then on Hurt's second interception, it was Driscoll that got beat by Jermaine Johnson. His arm got hit, ball floated up in the air, got picked. But if if that pass protection held up for a half second longer, not even a half second, a quarter second longer, like Devontae was running wide ass open on a deep cross that very well could have scored. And that's what Hurts was trying to hit. And even if it didn't score, it would have got inside the 10. So that's a big swing, you know, to go from potentially a 40-yard gain to a turnover. You also had the missed field goal from the Jets' 19-yard line. You had that weird deflection interception to Quinn and Williams. Um, you know, it just everything that could have gone wrong for Philly went wrong. And we've been waiting for their inconsistency to finally come back and bite them. And, and this just happened to be the game where it did it. Um, you know, the Jets were two, two of 11 on third down. Jets didn't have a good day on third down at all. They had less than 250 total yards. Wilson took five sacks. The Jets had nine or 90 yards of penalties. Might have been 89, but it was about 90 yards of penalties. They went one for four in the red zone against Philly. And that one was the Brees touchdown where they just let Brees score. So, you know, you look at all these metrics for the Jets and you're like, oh my God, they should have gotten blown the hell out. And they didn't. They won the game. <laughs> so, you know, credit to the Jets for hanging in there and winning this game. You know, I, I think Zach Wilson deserves credit for not screwing it up and and just kind of being okay and and not costing his team a winnable game with turnovers himself. Uh, you know, credit to Robert Sala for keeping these guys in it. Credit to the Jets for winning. But, 
I mean, my God. The Eagles just completely, completely, what's the word? Um, imploded. You know, and, and I think that they really got to take a hard look in the mirror because they've been flirting with this for about a month now. They've been flirting with a result like this for about a month because we they just consistently have gotten in their own way and it finally cost them a rather embarrassing loss, truth be told. Like this loss is embarrassing and they really got to get this shit cleaned up because if they don't, what are the Niners going to do to them? Like the Niners would have beat them by 30 if they played this kind of game against San Francisco. So yeah, like I, I come away less concerned about the Eagles because I know that the reason why the Eagles lost is less, uh, I don't know if this is a word, replicatable, replicable, whatever the whatever the word is. like Replicable. Replicable. Like the Eagles loss is less replicable than the 49ers loss. But at the same time, I feel like we've been seeing this kind of game from the Eagles every single week. So maybe it's not. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I don't disagree about the Eagles have been flirting with this. I think the themes that carry over from the last game we talked about are incredibly good defenses, and there were two of them in this game. Uh, The Jets' defense, I'll talk about at length because they deserve everything for this. And the Eagles' defense was also really good. And kickers. (laughs) Like, kickers helped... A lot there, you know, officiating was a big deal in Browns 49ers. It wasn't as big a deal for Eagles Jets. The stat that blew me away in this one is that the Jets have never beaten the Eagles. These are two franchises that have been around for how many decades now? And this is the first time ever. I was like, <laughs> That's okay, crazy. so when you're saying seven out of 10, I'm like, isn't that more like nine out of 10? Because they've <laughs> never done it. But This was Ravens-Steelers part due. This was Ravens-Steelers a week later. We saw this game a week ago. Neither team's offense could get it going. You talked about all the reasons that it didn't get going for the Eagles. I think whatever pixie dust got sprinkled on Zach Wilson for that one week has clearly washed off, and playing the Eagles' defense will do that to most quarterbacks. But the Jets' D made this happen, like including setting up the final score, just like the Steelers last week. This is that game all over again. Jets offense, largely impotent, but their defense was amazing. Two sacks, three interceptions of Hurts. Pressure turned one of the typically safest QBs in the NFL. And I will say that, even though the Eagles have been floating or flirting with not being explosive and whatever else, Jalen Hurts is not the guy typically that's going to lose you the game. He's not going to go out there and have three interception, four interception game. He's not going to have a two fumble game. Like, that's not him. And the Jets defense basically kind of turned him into that guy because the Jets defense is really good. And I want to credit them for that. And they did it without their top two corners. I'm just going to say that again. Yeah. Like the Jets did this to the Eagles without their two starting corners. Like Jeff Olbers for president at this point. <laughs> like that's, I mean, that's amazing. If you, I mean, before the game, I put out a tweet. I said, look, man, Eagles wide receivers are going to eat. And, A.J. Brown deserves mention. That guy is eating every week. He has ascended to a higher plane. If you are talking about the top wide receivers in the league and you get deeper than about four and A.J. is not in the conversation, I don't want to hear it anymore. Like, he is playing with so much confidence right now that he is eating against everybody. Forget top corners, in or out, doesn't matter. He is getting his every week. But Philly should have steamrolled the Jets. You're right. 
if we look at this game on paper, seven times out of ten, nine times out of ten, Philadelphia wins this. But the Jets were, they just wouldn't give up, right? They just kept swinging on defense, and that's a lot like the Steelers' defense last week. So that's why I feel like it was that game. And the Eagles' inability to run was really important. The Eagles always have that in their back pocket with that Jeff Stoutland coached offensive line and Jalen if you need him and just that scheme, brotherly shove, whatever. They can always run the ball. And the Jets were able to stand up straight up and say, no, you can't. Now you got to do the other things. Now you got to hit those shots. Now you got to pass protect. Now you got to, you know, and they did hit him to AJ, but Devonta, for the most part, didn't get his. Like you said, he had some open that, again, they couldn't pay off because of pressure. That's on the Jets' defense. The Jets' defense was so exceptional in this one. Jets' defensive line won the game. I mean, the Jets' yes. offense certainly yes. didn't win the game. No. And and their secondary definitely capitalized on opportunities that the defensive line gave them, but it was the Jets' defensive line that won it. Jermaine Johnson had a great day. Quinnen had a day. Like, I mean, Quincy on the second level. Quincy had some—I mean, he's a fucking missile. <laughs> like, I love Quincy. Uh, but, like, that, that's, that's literally the reason they won is because of elite defensive front versus elite offensive line. I know Lane was out early, but still, it's not like the rest of the offensive line isn't great in their own right. Like, they got five across that are all great. Um and the Jets' defensive front, defensive front won that matchup. Handily, actually. Handily won that matchup. So, again, I want to credit the Jets for winning. They earned the win. You know, credit Zach Wilson for being able to drive the bus. I wouldn't say he was good in the game, but I also wouldn't say he was bad. So, that's fine. You know, the rest, <laughs> the rest of the team is good enough that they can win as long as Zach Wilson is fine. And he was fine. Um, you know, Brees did Brees things, but... I I do think that overall the story of the game for me is is not about the Jets' feistiness uh, and not about the Jets, you know, somehow keeping their season alive. The story of the game to me is when are we actually going to see the Eagles play like the Eagles? Because I, you know, even though they're five and one, I still feel like we haven't seen that. And at this point, I don't know if we're going to see that. I'm just I'm waiting for the day that it happens. Uh, it's 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 frustrating. I'm not even an Eagles fan. And it's frustrating me because I, I look at the roster. I'm like, when are you going to play like yourself? And they still just haven't been able to do it. Well, the good news is they don't have to play many, if any, defenses on their schedule like the Jets because the yeah. Jets defense will make just about everybody looked pedestrian. And Salah came out after the game and said as much. He said, we, you know, played a lot of good quarterbacks. We haven't necessarily won them, but we've embarrassed them all. Like, we've, you know, he's we've right, by the down. way. He is correct. He's 100% right. He is not, you know, patting himself on the back. He's patting his guys on the back. And rightfully so. They have done an incredible job. I wouldn't exactly say Zach Wilson was good. I mean, Garrett Wilson did Garrett Wilson things. Brees did Brees things, and other than that, there was no other offense. Now, he didn't lose it. He didn't go out there and give up a, you know, four-sack fumble game, but 
Which, which is an hard. improvement, by the way. It, like, yeah, that's, it is. <laughs> that's it good. is, but it's it's hard for me to say that that was good. And I, I want to give, you know, Philadelphia's defense credit, too. Like, they caused that to happen. Hassan Reddick was a menace all day. Their defensive line made sure that the rest of that Jets offense didn't get rolling. Um, they did everything they could to make sure that this game was very winnable. I'm with you. We haven't seen Philadelphia click but I'm going to sort of go glasses half full on that and say, we haven't seen them click. They're five and one. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty damn good. Uh, all right. Seahawks Bengals. There's a lot of people that wondered if we were going to break down this game because, you know, you look at the box score and you're like, ah, it kind of looks like an ugly one. Uh, no, it, th- this was not incompetent offense versus incompetent offense. This was truly good defense versus good defense. Like, the, each secondary for both of these teams had terrific days overall. The Trey Brown pick against Jamar Chase, you know, one-on-one down the boundary, just winning it was awesome. Uh, the Hilton pick in quarters on the rail route from JSN, you know, such a veteran play for him to basically just look for whenever JSN peeked back and then to attack the back shoulder because he knew that's where the ball was going. Great pick. The Cam Taylor Britt uh, diving interception was awesome, and, and Taylor Britt himself had overall a, a pretty acceptable day against DK. I would say. You Did know, you hear his quote from Taylor Britt? Mm-hmm. No, bullies get bullied. They were uh, they were going at it <laughs> throughout the day, and you know DK of course had a DK ish type penalty on him because yep. Uh, DK gets feisty sometimes at the exact wrong moment. That is something that's that's kind of plagued him throughout his career, and Taylor Britt definitely got under his skin. Um, but in in front of uh, Taylor Britt, you know the the Bengals pass rush was absolutely relentless, especially late in the game. Um, the the Seahawks pass rush was equally relentless. <laughs> Neither team was good on third down. Seattle was five of twelve. The Bengals were three of eleven. You could argue, and when I went back and I looked at the all twenty two late last night, you could argue that Gino missed a read on the last series, on the second-to-last sack that he took. He left DK too quickly, in my opinion, on first and goal. He kind of saw DK slow playing the release uh, in terms of the fade. Uh, you know, he kind of got up there and he, he grabbed the corner and kind of slow played it and then kind of shot around him. And I, I feel like Gino left him too quickly in his progression. Um. And, and then you saw kind of Gino glance back at him, but by the time he did, and, and DK was coming wide-ass open, right? And by the time he glanced back at DK and saw he was coming open, the pressure already got there. So I, I feel like Gino, that, that's one that he would want back because that was potentially a game-winning touchdown. Um, and then, of course, his running back was wide open in the flat on fourth and goal too, but the pressure got there too quickly. Even with, that, even with those mistakes in the red zone late, I would still consider this game to be more of a defensive battle rather than a wet noodle contest on offense. Like both of these teams are very talented offenses. They just happen to run into equally, if not more so, uh, talent on defense for both these squads. In the end, since he just made enough plays to win, especially on the defensive line, um, you know, the narrative coming into this game that was that the Bengals' uh, run defense was very soft, but they only allowed three and a half per carry in this one. And if you take out Walker's one long run, they averaged two and 2.7 on the ground. So, you know, this this was a statement game for the Cincy defensive front. It was a state, statement game for the Cincy secondary. And I think, uh, you know, the Bengals' defense 
deserves a lot of credit for delivering them this win. It was it was uh, it, it was a season defining win for me for the Bengals to start out in the hole that they were in to now climb back and be three and three and actually like have a shot here to correct their season. Like this this was a season defining win and it came on the back of that defense and um, you know all all credit to them for pulling it off. Like it was a very very good game for them. We talked about in our preview show that this was going to be a struggle for the Seattle offense, that Waldron was going to have to come up with some answers versus Anna Rumo's defense, and it was. Game was a legit seesaw. It was 7-7 after one, 10-14 after two, 13-14 after three, and ended up 13-17 at the end. Talked about Cam Taylor-Britt. He was big in this one, uh, literally and, and figuratively. Holding DK under 70 without a touchdown, I'm fine. That I'm sure Anarumo and Cincinnati are fine with that. Like, take the big play receiver and make sure that he doesn't have a huge impact. We're cool with it. Also frustrates DK, as you said, into those dumb penalties, and he's he's just going to do that. It's a feature, not a bug at this point. <laughs> You're totally right. The, the Bengals bottled up the Seattle run game. You talked about it. Seattle tried. Like, sometimes we say they bottle up the run game and the other team quit. No, Seattle had 25 rushes in this one. They didn't – it's not for lack of trying, but came away with under three and a half a carry. I'm going to call this the DJ and BJ effect. That's Reeder and Hill. They were stumps all the way along, made sure they couldn't get runs through the middle. Bengals had plenty of pressure, four sacks, especially at the end of the game. This is – this is interesting stuff on Geno at the end of the game. Six of his 13 QB hits came on just 13 red zone snaps. So 50, 50% of the hits came on 33% of the dropbacks. The result of that, he was 3 of 10, 17 yards, and a pick. That's crazy. So you want to talk about Anarumo dialing it up when it counts. Again, this is we talk about defensive coordinators who can, who can pull the lever at the right time, keep points to a minimum, like Anarumo is an absolute master of that one and he won this matchup we talked about he and Waldron going at it Waldron got smacked in the mouth and he in my mind kind of failed to adapt he didn't put Gino on the move when it became obvious that the pass pro wasn't great by the way Seattle wants their right side back like hey universe they they want their right they want their right side back right now because it's amazing that they competed as hard as they did in this game without those guys there um in my mind, Walder needed to choke up more. I mean, like, choke up on the bat. He needed more quick hitters. He needed more quick answers. And instead, he left the sort of slower developing, you talked about it a little bit, concepts in, and Cincinnati took that extra time to get home. And that was a major strategic kind of blunder for me with Walder. And it's like, hey, you're getting smacked in the mouth. Put some stuff in here. Start using JSN. They used him a little bit, but start using him on those quick-breaking inside routes where it's, you know, barely a three-step drop and throw it it's almost catch it and throw it to take some of that heat off the pass rush because your your right side of the line's not holding up and the longer developing concepts are getting your quarterback hit and your offense is starting to stall come on man flip and he didn't flip so in my mind Anarumo ends up winning this one um and the Bengals end up winning it as well yeah I would I would say that um I have no concerns about either of these teams going forward because I, I believe in both of their defenses, and I also believe in both of their offenses on the whole. Like, Joe Burrow, we didn't even get to talk about this. Like, again, I, I know he didn't have, like, a huge, huge day, and, and Jamar Chase was kept to, like, 80 yards, which for guarding Jamar Chase standards is good. Um, 
Burrow's mobility is 100% back. Like, he's good. Like, he's fine. Like, you saw uh, there was a third and 10 where he was running for his life up and down. He, he ran, like, 50 yards <laughs> to, just to throw for, like, a three-yard gain on third and 10. I was like, all right, yeah, Joe's fine. Uh, you know, and, you know and that, so, was the, that was the fourth longest time he held the ball in his career. That was only number four? That's what's <laughs> even more surprising. He was running around for, like, eight seconds. Ten. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, but I, I I don't have any concerns about their offense uh, going forward because clearly Joe is fine. Um, and I do think that, you know, a lot of the reason why Seattle was able to bottle them up was was for a lot of the reasons that we talked about going into this game, you know, uh, and, and, and comparing it to the Arizona game. Arizona was was just offering up free releases all day long. So Burrow could basically just catch it and throw it because Jamar was not being challenged. Seattle actually challenged Jamar with press coverage and made him catch some really tough balls against press coverage. Had one against Woolen uh, down the sideline where he, you know, had a little bit of a catch and run. Um, and then, you know, there, there was a snap against quarters where he had another big catch and run where they kind of hit like a little bender uh, behind the hook zone player. But for the most part, they were challenging Jamar and saying, go ahead, beat us against press man. And and he got his, but they still kept him from being the reason they won the game. So, you know, in a way, the prediction that we had for how Seattle was going to play them was correct because the Bengals didn't have a huge day on offense. Um, but at the same time, the Bengals defense was just better. So that's why I don't really have concerns about the Bengals going forward because the Lou, Anarumo, Lou Anarumo defense is for sure all the way back. And the offense from a Burrow mobility standpoint is going to be just fine as well. So uh, Cincy is Cincy again. Seattle is, for the most part, Seattle again. Both of these teams are going to be fine. And they got pressure. Seattle, we talked about Seattle's pressure being a big part of their ability to influence this game, that they were going to have to bring pressure and that that was going to be difficult because Cincinnati was the second lowest pass pressure rate allowed in dropbacks for weeks two through five. And the Seahawks got home. Mm -hmm. Like Boye Mafe is coming into his own. We highlighted a couple other players. Clint Hurts' rush packages all year have been really good, and they worked against Cincinnati. If they worked against Cincinnati, folks, <laughs> they're going to work against anybody. Again, that was the second lowest pass pressure rate weeks two through five. Cincinnati's been very good at protecting the passer. They needed to, especially with Joe Hobbled. Seahawks got to him anyways. Like Clint Hurd is dialing up pressure that will get to anyone, and when you have that secondary that's that pressure and coverage combination. Hawks are going to be able to play down the stretch. It should be really encouraging. I know it's a loss, Seahawks fans, but you went toe-to-toe -to -toe with one of the best teams in the NFL. I know the record doesn't say so, but talent-wise, and had a chance to win the game late. Like that's, that's as good as you can hope for. Our final game of the day, Lions-Buccaneers. Of course, I'm wearing my, my Lions crew neck from homage to celebrate. By the way, as good a transition opportunity as I'm going to get. Uh, if you're also interested in getting officially licensed NFL gear for all 32 teams, whether it's crew necks like this one or T-shirts or hoodies, starter jackets, whatever you want. In addition to some other stuff, like I, I got a Legend of the Hidden Temple uh, uh, crew from them last week because I'm a millennial and grew up on that damn show and I love it so much. Uh, but they have a whole <laughs> bunch of different like pop culture shirts and, and hoodies and everything like that, but especially the NFL stuff. Uh, you can head down to the link in the description below at Homage. Anything you happen to buy from them, if you browse their catalog and like something, 
directly benefits the show. We get a portion of that purchase. So, uh, hope you guys do that. <laughs> and it's starter pullover day. They launch today. So speaking of nostalgia, if you're into the NFL and you're around in the 1990s, the starter pullover jackets are about the biggest nostalgia hit you're going to be able to get. They've got them for all teams. They are launching today, Monday, 10, 16. They're going to go quick. If you want one, get it. Go ahead and use that link in the description. Benefits the show. And you'll have that sweet, sweet gear that you always wanted when you're a young fan watching the NFL. The Bucks one, by the way, is creamsicle, which the Bucks yes. did wear the creamsicles oh. in this game, and they are so good, EJ. They're so. And they good. decorated the entire stadium. They had the whole stadium all dripped up in all the '70s stuff. They had uh, players arriving in like 1970s era muscle cars. Like they they went all out, and it was man flipping it on and seeing the cream schools on the field again. I know there's a lot of Tampa fans out there. Um, our buddy Trevor Sikama and Luke Easterling and a whole bunch of guys that grew up on Tampa football were just that yesterday was their day in the sun. I understand that in the combined time when they brought him back like 10 years ago and, and when they brought him back, like they're one and four in the cream skulls. I don't care. Like I would just I would keep using them every <laughs> single year. They're so good. They're so good. Eventually they're going to win in this. Like eventually they've lost four straight in them, but eventually it'll be good. It's like you betting on kickers. They just happened to go up against the freaking Lions. I know. You know, when they wore them. And the Lions, many people um, now firmly believe, are the most complete team in football. And to be honest, I'm not sure I disagree. Like, if we're looking at the combination of, uh, you know, vertical explosiveness on offense, the ability to control the ball on offense... In addition to uh, having a, not even borderline elite, but straight up elite defense, especially on the, uh, against the ground game, all while dealing with significant injuries, you could very easily argue that this is the most complete team in football. Like nobody else has as few holes as them, even San Francisco, even Philly. Like it's absolutely absurd what they've been able to do again, considering their injuries. Like it speaks to their depth. They've won four straight games by fourteen plus points. First time they've done that since the fifties. This is a truly amazing football team, and I don't know, I I don't know how how far they're going to go. Like I picked them to go to the NFC Championship game, just kind of like on a hope and a prayer. They might be, <laughs> they might be even more than that. Like that's how well they've been playing. Lions preseason hype was well-aimed. Like you said, it was our second summer preview episode, I think, that we put out. It was the first one to crack 40,000. We were like, wow, like Detroit's hyped on the Lions this year, more so than I'd ever seen. And again, when I say well-aimed, it's because they're doing historic stuff. Goff is on pace for over 4,500 yards, over 30 TDs, only nine picks, and a quarterback rating of 105. I said earlier, if you don't have A.J. Brown in the top receiver conversation, I don't want to hear it. If you don't have Goff in the top quarterback conversation right now, and I don't just mean for the NFC, like you have to acknowledge what he is doing in the second year of the Ben Johnson offense as league leading. He is driving this team. He did it without his primary receiving threat for the last couple of games. Amon Ross St. Brown came back. He saw how big of a difference that made. He you know stepped right back in. 
Goff's completing 70% of his passes, and it's enough that Campbell put this one in his hands. And now think about that from when Goff arrived at the Lions and Campbell too, uh, to now that Campbell, after the game, knew that the Lions were struggling with a run, and he said after the game, he was in a rhythm, in a groove, and we really just felt like that was the best way to move the football was to put it in his hands. Like Campbell handed this one to Goff and said, look, my my ground pound run game is not working. I need you to go win this thing for us. And Goff was like, okay, and did it. That's a huge transition. That's a that's another stage of development the Lions needed to get to, and they're there now, and that should be scary for any future Lions opponents. They were averaging 1.8 yards per carry. They could not run the ball. You know, they're down a couple running backs. Again, extremely injured team. Monty got hurt. Gibbs is hurt. You know, they're down to, I think, Craig Reynolds was 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 who's toting the rock for them, in addition to throwing amazing blocks for Amon Ross St. Brown, by the way. Incredible play by him. <laughs> but they were averaging 1.8 yards per carry and still held the ball for 36 minutes because of how insanely efficient Jared Goff was. You know, he threw for 350, had no turnover-worthy plays. Um, they were 9 of 16 on third down, which is excellent. Like, if, if you average that over the course of a season, that would have been literally the best third down rate in the league because 50%, anything over 50% is extremely good. Um, they had 69 total plays with 36-30 TOP. It's really, really special to be able to control the ball while throwing that much. Like that is extremely hard to do because you have to be so precise. You have to be so efficient. You have to make literally zero mistakes. And and to be able to do that while also having that vertical explosive element with Jamison Williams, we had a Jamison Williams sighting in this game, you know, having an amazing uh, deep ball touchdown where he kind of like turned over his shoulder, then turned around, then adjusted back the other way. Like great adjustment by him. It's so easy to see why people see this as the most, not just complete offense, but complete team. Like they've held teams to 68 yards rushing per game going into this one, a top three mark in the NFL. They held Tampa to 46, 46 yards rushing. And I know it's Tampa, like they're terrible at running the ball, but like some teams accidentally run for 46. Like they might be the number one rush defense in the entire league this year. Um, you know, and Tampa did have their opportunities. They were 2 of 12 on third down, partly due to Baker just having a ton of accuracy issues, especially down the field. But, you know, they still got more pressure as a defensive line, even with their injuries on the defensive line. They still got more pressure on Baker than he's used to seeing. If you look at the first five weeks of the season, or technically four weeks of the season for Tampa, they were the uh, second most efficient offensive line in terms of pressure percentage allowed at 22.1%. Detroit got 30% which is around mid-pack in the NFL. So making the second best by efficiency uh, pass protection team in the league look average, even while having guys on IR, that is a statement. You know, Benito Jones and John Kaminsky being unsung heroes in this one, just teeing off on Cody Malk over and over and over again, combined for seven pressures. That is a statement. So to have this dominant defensive line performance a dominant performance from Jared Goff, a Jamison Williams sighting, you know, uh, Amon Ra doing Amon Ra things, special teams playing well. Like, where's the weakness? I don't, I don't know if they have one. Even with the injuries, I don't think they have a weakness. And that is so incredibly special to see an NFL team that really doesn't have a yeah but to their game. I don't think they have a yeah but. 
getting great contribution from their rookies. Obviously, Sam Laporta blowing up the tight end rankings throughout the NFL. Jack Campbell, Brian Branch before he got hurt. This is a good team with both established veteran talent, young talent. They're getting healthy again, which should scare everybody. Williams, that was such a Williams play. That's like why Detroit drafted Jamison Williams is we need an explosive over-the-top element. He lined up in the slot and just climbed all over the slot defender and just walked away from Goff. was like, hey, you're even. I'm throwing it to you. Goes up, wins the ball, touchdown. Like he only had three or four good looks throughout the game. It's all he needs, right? He's gonna throw a touch. He's gonna throw a touchdown on the scoreboard if you give him three or four looks a game. Amon Ra is gonna do everything underneath. Twelve for 124 in his first game back after a couple gone. Um, the Lions' defense was really good. Baker, we saw the first bad Baker appearance of the season. We've been singing Dave Canales' praises and saying, "Hey, he's got Baker right in the lane. He's putting him in good situations." Lions defense didn't allow that. Baker, to his credit, owned it, went to the podium, said, I suck today. We sucked. It was awful, quote, unquote. He ain't wrong. He ain't wrong. And, again, I want to give some credit to Alex Anzalone. Like, Anzalone was a guy that played with a ton of effort. He was all over the field, but I thought he was pretty limited coming out of college. And I compared him to Nick Bolton yesterday in the way that that was my – that was my assessment for Bolton coming out of college too, that he was really good, played with played with great effort, but he had areas of his game where it wasn't good. Anzalone's gotten so much better in the pros. He was everywhere yesterday for that defense and affected the game at all levels. Run game, pass game, pressure, everything. He is playing as well as he ever has as a pro, and the rest of the defense around him also playing really, really well, down to the unsung heroes that you mentioned. And I'm with you. Detroit is a powerhouse of a team right now. Uh, all right. Let's get out of here. We'll see you guys on Thursday for the TNF live stream. Thank you to our executive producers, Marat, Consti, Andrew, Liam, Connor, and Mike L. We appreciate all of you once again. We'll see you in a few days. And until then, later. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.